Hey, I think I'm already winning because I didn't turn the mic on when I went to the bathroom earlier. Nice, so. nice. This is Kevin's Wurt, ladies and gentlemen. Give me a hand. Morning, everybody. Um, it's good to be back. We were here in December. Uh, we met many of you and talked briefly with many of you. We had a chance to talk with a few more last night when we got in. Uh, we stayed overnight and talked to the mission committee, so if you have any more questions about us, you can ask them now, because they're fully informed. Um, but I just wanted to explain, get you up to date. Uh, if you don't remember who we are, um, my wife Cammie and I, she's all the way in the back there. And our oldest son, Toby, he's 14. And our youngest, Ben, went off to Children's Church. We've been um, serving in Africa since 19... What? I don't know. 94? Um, and then we've been back and forth. And then in 2007, we went to Mozambique, Africa, uh, and we've been there ever since. Uh, the end of last year, well, over the last four years, my wife has had some back issues, which none of you know anything about, I'm sure. Um, and they've been pretty traumatic. Uh, a couple surgeries, um, nerve pain, and things like that. And then we reached a point where uh, it wasn't going away. And so we sent her down to South Africa, which is the nearest medical care for us. And the physio and the doctor said, you need to get out of there. Or else you're going to have another surgery and another surgery and another surgery. And so God kind of pushed us and said, now what? And we've talked to our leadership who is in Johannesburg. And they offered us a few jobs instantly, which is frightening. I used to have a lot of respect for our leadership. And then they... They've given us more responsibility. So, I don't know. Either I'm improving or, or they're diminishing their faculties. But we're excited. Um, we've been home since last, last August, living in Fairfield, Connecticut, which is another one of our supporting churches, has a home that we rent there. And it's an hour from my brother and my parents' house, and it's kind of central to a lot of our supporting churches. For those of you who don't know, missionaries who raise their own support, like ourselves, um, we're with Africa Inland Mission, a faith-based mission organization, very evangelical, very interdenominational, but it's on us to raise our support. So if we need $5,000 a month to live, we're to go out there and ask friends and family to give. If we need 10, or if we're in Japan and we need 50, it's still going to be on us. Um, we are currently at 85%, and we can't go back to Africa until we get to 100 so we're just praying and walking and doing what we need to do every day. Um, I'm not going to mention that again, but if you feel led, the church does give to us monthly, and we ever so appreciate that. But over 70% of our support comes from individuals, um, and we love them dearly, <laughs> and they pray for us, and they are intricately involved in what we do, and we've had a wonderful time this furlough visiting them. Um, we just got back on Wednesday from a 3,000-mile trip up and down the East Coast, stopping all the way up and down. And we saw a lot of family and friends and supporters and some that we hadn't seen for 10 or 20 years. And it was, it was great, but we're tired. So bear with us. Um, but we're glad because we scheduled this meeting knowing that I wouldn't have another chance. Um, I'm scheduled to go back to Mozambique June 12th. Uh, work with the eight men that I've been working with for the last eight years in Mozambique. And uh, they are in the process of legalizing a Bible training program that we started together. 
They go out in the villages and teach now. They are running the program. They teach the courses. Um, and I'm ever so glad and so relieved, honestly, that they have just, they've carried it forward while I've been gone. So in June, I'll go back, work with them some more, do some leadership training, set up a computer someone's donated for them, set them up on Skype so I can continue with contact with them. And then every year, I will go back for three weeks and do more training and follow-up. The family, uh, the boys and Cami, will come out in July, Lord willing. Uh, they'll stop in Kenya and go visit the school that Toby's interested in going to, AIM. Our mission has a, uh, a Rift Valley Academy, uh, which has been a missionary kid school for 100 years. So they, they don't, I'm going to say cater, but they really take care of missionary kids. Missionary kids are different than normal kids. I say they're better, but I try not to say that. I don't try to say that out loud very much, but I do. And they're third culture kids. They grow up in Africa. They come back to America. Nothing feels quite right, so we call them third culture kids. And this school is designed for them. 100 years they've been honing and working, and the people that go there are missionaries wanting to serve those kids. So Toby's excited to go find a peer group like himself. Uh, he'll be going into ninth grade at the end of August there. You could pray for him, and you could pray for us as we weep at home. He'll go for three months, come back for a month, go for three, come back for a month, go for three, come back for a month. So it's a good system. It's, uh, the principal of the school I spoke to last time I was there, and uh, he said it's not ideal. Every parent wants their child with them, but it's a really great second choice. And that's kind of how we're looking at it as provision for him and what will be best for him. Um, and we're praying that that's true. On the back table as you leave, if anything strikes you about what I have to say today, that's wonderful. Uh, it'll be the Holy Spirit, because this is my thing. This isn't a thing I've prepared for you. Um, but if you're interested in missions, a month, three months, a year, two years, 20 years, talk to us. We'd love to tell you about it and what it takes. Uh, we love our mission agency. They're very focused in what we do. We have a priority for our unreached tribes. Now, by that, it doesn't mean that we're going to go live in a hut. Uh, we have lived in a cement and tin-roofed house for the last eight years in a city of three-quarters of a million people in northern Mozambique. But my efforts to mobilize and equip nationals, hopefully, will transpire in them becoming more evangelistic and actually disciple-making in their communities where they live, with their neighbors who are Muslims, with their neighbors who are animistic. Uh, and that's our role. Our new role we are going to be leaving Mozambique. Toby is going to go off to Kenya. We're going to move to the other side of the continent to a, a, city, um, a city called Windhoek in Namibia. If you know me, 21, 22 years ago, that's where Cammie and I started. We were up in the northern uh, province of Namibia. It's a desert country. Instead of 40 million people with a, a people group of 8 million where we've worked, we're going to go to a whole country that is composed of 2.5 million people spread out over great distances. Um, but the church there has struggled uh, to take the responsibility to reach the unreached. And therefore, we're going to go in there and see what can be done. Um, they've given us the responsibility to lead our team of missionaries there. There's 15 missionaries already working. We're going to go in in September, October, whenever our visas come through, uh, and take over for the unit leaders that are leaving. And we're excited about the doors are wide open, the possibilities are endless, uh, the government is not very friendly towards missionaries, so it's going to be a, a place to exercise a little creativity. Um, 
but we're excited. It's a step back from frontline working with nationals, um, but our hope is to actually work with nationals to get them motivated, trained up, and able to go out. There's more information on our back table. A lot of people like this little thing, has some facts, how to pray for missionaries on the back, who AIM is, brief, brief history. Um, and then this is a new brochure, we call it propaganda, um, that they've put out. And it actually goes through our new goals, which the mission has come up with in the last couple of years. And we have five new goals, uh, all geared towards reaching the unreached, which I'm going to talk a little bit about today. So if you're interested in that, please just take whatever. And if there's not enough assets, there's more in the box under the table. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this church. I thank you for our brothers and sisters here. Uh, Lord, for what you're doing in their midst and what you're doing in their lives. Lord, I thank you for their love for us as a family, as your servants. Um, Lord, I pray that you'll just uh, speak through me, calm my heart, and uh, just be present. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I have always been fascinated by fanatics. And I say that because they do amazing things. Now, I know fanaticism or fanatics have a very negative connotation. Um, you know, we like all the pleasant, good words like, oh, you're a fan of Jesus, or you're a Jesus follower, or you're a Jesus freak if you're back in the 80s and 90s with uh, the newsboys. But lately, this word fanaticism has, has come back into my thinking. And there's some things that I've been mulling over since December. And I have to tell you, I think when we shared in December, I shared with you how God kind of did some restoration in me um, from some hard things that we went through our last four years in Mozambique. And I think from December on, God's kind of given me a new direction and a new vision of what I'm about. Um, and this idea of a fanatic has, has kind of stuck with me. The, the definition of a fanatic is a person filled with excessive and single-minded zeal, especially for an extreme religious or political cause. It could be a zealot, a militant, uh, a dogmatist, a devotee, or an adherent. And obviously in those other synonyms, we can hear a lot of negativity, but I think there's some positive stuff about being a fanatic, which possibly we need to be more like. Um, I know I need to be more like. There is a, a seminary lecturer in Estonia. I don't know where I got this from. Uh, and he said that not all fanatics are negative. Um, and he said his definition was an unwavering conviction about absolute rightness of one's understanding. Unwavering. You know, we can go through Jesus' words about, you know, neither black nor white. You know, you should hold fast to what you do. Don't be blown about by the waves. All these things where Jesus says, no, be consistent. If you believe it, then stick to it. Um, and it's true. Fanatics have done some pretty awful stuff when they become so rigid and so dogmatic about what they believe. We can talk about Al-Qaeda, we can talk about Abu Sharif, we could talk about Boko Haram, Hamas, any of these extreme terrorist groups. And most of them believe what they believe because of their religion. 
And I know a lot of politically correct people in America will say, no, 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 that's not true. Islam is a religion of peace. Well, I would challenge them to study a little bit further. And just as Christianity has not always been a religion of peace, if you think about the atrocities that we have done in the name of our faith, whether it be the Crusades or different things where we've gone in as missionaries and wiped out whole cultures. Now, maybe not physically, but culturally wiped things out. There's evil that can be done. And I'm not calling for that kind of negativity and, and being a fanatic. But what always has struck me is the level of commitment that they have because of what they believe. And they put it directly into practice in what they do daily in where they live. And not only that, but their level of sacrifice has often been, and maybe you think I'm crazy for saying this, but it's been way above what I've been willing to sacrifice. Um, so I've always looked at them, and I've looked at our Muslim neighbors in Mozambique and think, I give them some credit. You know, my hat's off. They, they're really devoted to Allah. They're really devoted to whatever Hindu god they believe in or, or whatever it is that they're following or their ancestors. They are totally dedicated to the point where they don't care what you think. They don't care what they suffer. They don't care the destitution they may live in. And I've given them some credit for that. But more recently, I, I've come to be a little bit ashamed. Um... And yeah, I'm a professional Christian. I'm a missionary out there teaching the Bible. But am I doing enough? Do I have enough passion and zeal for what I do? And you might think I do, but I don't think I do. Um, and I'll explain why I say that in a minute. But I want to be the kind of person that everyone who meets me says, yeah, that guy loves Jesus more than anything. He's all right, too. He's not crazy. I don't want them to think I'm crazy, necessarily, because then you just lose any conversation you had. But I do want them to know, what is the one driving thing in my life? And sometimes that gets very confused, especially when we suffer, which is a whole other part of living, but it happens to be where fanatics grow, where Christians grow, where we all actually either make it or not. So I'm not condoning violence. I'm not condoning us become militant and you know, yelling at people on the street if they're far from the Lord, because that's not going to help anybody. But I do believe that I, and maybe we need to be a little bit more focused. And now, I've been grappling with this, because if you know me, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not going to walk up to a stranger on the street and say, hey, if you die today, would you go to heaven? I, that's not me. I'm not that way. I, I, I lack the, surprisingly enough, the zeal or the, the personal uh, impetus to confront in that way. I would rather become their friend and slowly talk to them about what they believe and why they believe what they believe and then tell them about what Jesus has done for me and what following Christ means for me and it's usually a much slower process. Well, in that slower process, guys, it's been a while since I've led anyone to the Lord. It's embarrassing. We have, we have ISIS who have very strong religious beliefs that are, are leaving their home countries, their families, their cities, moving over to Syria, doing amazing things, often terrible things, 
amazing things because of what they believe. And I, I read an article in uh, The Atlantic, and I don't know anything about the magazine The Atlantic. I don't know if it's liberal or kooky or what, but the article seemed very well-founded, and his research looked pretty good. And I can give you the, where I got it from, the exact link. Um, but it's really gotten me thinking specifically about ISIS and why they do what they do. And I just want to read a couple of quotes, and then I'm going to kind of bring it back. It says, The Islamic State is no mere collection, no mere collection of psychopaths. It is a religious group with a carefully considered beliefs, among them that it is a key agent in the coming apocalypse. In a nutshell, the article goes on to say, this brand, this, this denomination of Islam believes that Jesus is going to come back as a prophet, as a, a leader of Islam, when the West wages war against Islam, Islam Islamic people in this, this one particular valley, uh, Dabiq near Aleppo in Syria. And so the article goes on to say that's their whole aim, is to provoke this war. So the West will come over there and go to war, and then the end will come. That's why they're doing what they're doing. I read the article, and I'm like, nah, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. And then I read a couple other things, and I said, well, it does sound that's why they're doing what they're doing. They hold so firmly to that belief that they can be instrumental, that they're willing to do amazing things, things that scare the pants off us, things that make us worry about going down to New York City, things that make a lot of people not travel in airplanes, a lot of stuff. To go on in the article, it says, all Muslims acknowledge that God is the only one who knows the future, but they also agree that he has offered us a peek at it in the Quran and in the narrations of the prophet. The Islamic State differs from nearly every other current jihadist movement in believing that it, ISIS, is written into God's script as a central character. It is in this casting that the Islamic State is most boldly distinctive from its predecessors and clearest in its religious nature of its mission. Does that sound at all familiar to kind of what we believe? I mean, if, if we look hard enough to Scripture, we have a key role in bringing Christ back. And I want to talk specifically about that today because it's kind of shook me. It's kind of gotten me refocused on why I'm here and why I do what we do in Africa and why we talk to churches and why we talk to our family members about Christ because I want Christ to come back. <laughs> the world without him is kind of crummy. Um, do I really want him to come back? These, these ISIS jihadists, these Islamic believers really want the end to come. They want the apocalypse, the rule of Christ in that battle to come forth. So much so that you've read the news and you watch it probably more intensely than I do. They're doing all sorts of stuff. Pretty terrible stuff sometimes. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that all ISIS people are fighters. Very few. If they, I think the percentage was like 7% of everyone who believes in the doctrine of ISIS in that particular eschatology are actually militant or fighting. The rest of them are just adherents, and they're moving there to build up the kingdom under that caliph, that new king, which they thought had to pre, pre, precurse the coming of the end. So they believe that caliph is there now in Syria, 
They're moving there to form a civilization around him, and the other fighters are out there to try to provoking this battle in Aleppo. Does that make sense? Are we following me? It got me thinking back to our own eschatology. It got me thinking back to if their passion is so strong, what about mine to bring about Christ's return? Now, I kind of don't want to be a fanatic like their fanatics, because that would be bad. But I want to be a fanatic for Christ. I want to be someone who does everything in my power and abilities and gifting that makes people know that I am anxious for Jesus to return. Not because he's going to rain judgment, which he is going to bring judgment, but because that will bring about the kingdom. Final, physical form, the kingdom on earth. I see some very questioning looks here. This is fun. But um, just bear with me. Just follow me here. Because this has been a long process. So I'm trying to sum up a couple months of thinking. Um, But I've struggled with eschatology. And I studied it back in college. And I remember saying, okay, you can be pre-mill, on-mill, post-mill. You can be this, that, this, that, the other. You can read that verse and say this. You can read this verse and say that. You can read these verses and deny both of them. And, you can, and it just gets rather confusing. So what I've done is I've kind of taken it all and thrown it on the shelf and say, I'm just waiting for him to come back. <laughs> I, I have some supporters who are very much into doctrine. And for the first couple of years in Africa, they, I would come home and they'd be like, so are you teaching Trinitarianism? I'd be like, well, actually, I'm just teaching them not to sleep around right now and that God is good. <laughs> it's the basics. If you don't get the basics, everything else is kind of immaterial. And, and I'm a firm believer in, um, what's the phrase, disputable matters. Just leave them aside. Um, there's things that Cammie and I disagree on that we probably agreed 10 years ago not to talk about. And that's okay. We have a very stable marriage because of it, probably. And those things really don't matter um, in my salvation, in the salvation of others. And that's okay. Do I believe Jesus is the only way to God? Yes. Do I believe that he died for my sins and for all those? Yes, everyone. Do I believe that everyone has a possibility? Yes. Do I know who God is predestined? No. Do I know what predestination means? No, not really. I could probably give you an argument, but it still isn't crystal clear to me. I'll figure I'll wait until I get there. Um, and up until then, I'm going to try to live the best way possible. Now, I used to think that was enough, and then I've been kind of thinking about these is- Islamists and-, and their passion and their devotion. I've said, well, maybe it's not. And I've looked at my eschatology, and I've said, well, do I believe Christ's coming back? Yes, I do. I think he's going to come back, and he's going to judge the world. And he's going to rescue his followers and bring them into the kingdom. And the rest are going to go in eternal separation from God. Whether that's burning in a lake of fire or just some abyss. I don't know. Depends how you interpret. So I looked at two verses. Because often I think we get caught up with the, well, then what's the date? Is it going to be 2020? Is it going to be 2030? Is it going to be because this little war here and we're going to interpret that? leader over in Turkey, he's you know, the Antichrist, and he's, or is that, no, I'm not going to even say that name. Um, and we keep on interpreting, thinking we need specifics. And I'm kind of thinking, no, we don't need specifics anymore, okay? Let's just leave the specifics to Jesus when he's coming, because the Father's going to tell him, and he's going to come. But 
if you look at Matthew 24:14 with me, I think we have enough to go on to move and be a little bit more fanatical about bringing Christ back. And yes, this plays into being a missionary very well. I'm going to read from 9. Chapter 24, Matthew 24, 9 through 14. Then they will deliver you up to, to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Is any of that happening? Probably. And because lawlessness, lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now here's the verse that struck me. 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's eschatology. That's, that's the end times are coming when the gospels preached to all nations. Now, if you look at the words very carefully, all nations, it's all ethnic groups. It's not, okay, we're going to go to Turkey, we're going to go to Israel, we're going to go to Syria, we're going to go... No, it's actually each ethnic or language group. And there's other verses that support that um, interpretation. Do we really want them to come back? You know, I've worked in Africa for a long time. And I thought I was doing things that were good. And I thought I was building up the church. And I hope we did some part in that. And I hope and pray that the teaching and the lifestyle and the, the moral example that I gave to those around me caused them to draw closer to God caused them to follow his word better, uh, motivated them to reach out to their neighbors. Those are all my hopes, dreams, and prayers. But did I take it this one step further to say, and I'm going to do this because I want Christ to come back. In this verse it says, every nation must be reached. Every people group. Okay, it brings me back to AIM's five refocus goals, which are on this nice little piece of paper, which I... I was going to try to put on the big screen, but you get it. In Africa alone, there's a more, give or take a thousand tribes that have yet to be reached with the gospel. By reached with the gospel, it means they have no viable witness within their own people group. They have no one to tell them what Jesus did for them. They have no church. They have no tribe coming next to them and saying, hey, did you hear about Jesus? Nothing yet. A thousand. Globally, there's, I think... I wrote it down somewhere. Where did I write it down? There it is. There's 17,000 people groups in the world. That's almost 7.5 billion people in the world. Okay, That's a lot of people. 40%. 40% are still unreached. What are we doing? You know, I, I recently was in Kenya uh, for a leadership meeting because they've so foolishly given us this leadership position. Or they have a lot more faith than I do. Maybe that's it. And we've been in Kenya and Tanzania for over 100 years. And I met with other Bible school teachers and TEE teachers and uh, those working uh, there in theological education. I said, so how many of our institutions, how many of our programs have we actually turned over to nationals, trained them up and set them off to do it themselves and moved on to a new place? And there were three. There were 35 of us there. 
There were three. And I was just like, what are we doing? And granted, when we moved to Kenya, there was no church. So we started our own denomination called the Africa Inland Church, AIC. And it's a great, big, vibrant. They're actually sending missionaries into Sudan now. Some of those churches are awesome. But our Bible schools are still kind of going by old methods and old ways. And I keep on wondering, are we doing it right? Are we, are we really aware of, are we actually reaching those unreached tribes? Are we actually mobilizing others to reach those tribes? Am I actually equipping others to do it? And I will tell you, my TEE program in Mozambique was incomplete. And I only saw it three quarters of the way through and we tried to make adjustments and changes and add curriculum and do different things and, and it's still working on it. There's no perfect plan. But that should be our goal. For that reason, AIM has also given me another job, which I didn't mention at first. Um, I'm the alternative theological education coordinator, no, consultant for the southern region. So I'll also work with the nine countries that we're in, in the southern region of Africa, looking at their Bible school programs, looking at their teaching methodology, and saying, are we actually reaching this Muslim village? Is that the best way to do it? Is that the most appropriate way to reach that demographic of people, that education level, uh, that cultural background? Which also excites me, because that's kind of, that's interesting stuff for me. That's anthropology and philosophy and religion, and that'll be fun. But it brings me back to this. Are what we doing the best way to do it? The second verse I want us to look at, and I realize I only have another hour and a half left, but um, <laughs> I will look at that clock occasionally. And then my wife will jump up and down and say, that's enough. But um, Revelation 7, 9. And it says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this is kind of like the, the product, the fruit of actually sharing with all those tribes and ethnic groups and languages. The fruit of all that is that someday, and before the throne, there's going to be a representative from every single one. And that's going to be an awesome sight. But is that really our goal? Is that really my goal? And I, was, I struggled with this, guys. I am not a super Christian. I am not... You know, the boldest guy out there on the street. Um, I, I love living in Africa. I love challenges. I love new things. I love meeting new people. I love talking about spiritual matters and, and digging into the Bible. I love all that stuff. But I'm not perfect. And then I read these verses and I said, is this what I'm really doing? Is this what I'm really focused on my goal for? And I want to challenge us. Because it means until this happens, until every tribe and and people group is reached, Jesus will not come back. It's almost like you say, uh-uh, no. You've got work to do. You finish your work. You reach out to all those people groups, and then the Father will send me. To me, this is the only clear indication I know of our responsibility that we can help get into God's plan for Jesus' return. I'm thrilled 
honored, excited about going back to Africa and doing what our new roles will call us to do. Because I believe I will have more impact and more influence in training others and bringing about Christ's return. I love living with Christ day to day, but I can't wait to meet him face to face. I love worshiping. But how much better is it going to be when you worship at his throne? I love seeing people restored and whole and healed. But how much better is it when it's complete? And I think, I know, I lost focus over the years. And maybe in Bible school I had that zeal. But over the years it's kind of waned because it got confusing. and People like to debate. And people want to criticize, and people want to argue, and I'm not a big arguer, and it wasn't essential. But maybe it should be. And maybe if it was essential to us and to me, we could speed God's sending the sun back. Trust me, I'm not saying that we can move God's hand or change his timing. But I do think that we can have a part in it, a big part in it. He's not coming back until we get the job done. We have work to do. The article that I mentioned in the, in the beginning, I was shocked. Um, because those who follow Muhammad, who I believe was a deceived man, who ruled with viciousness and ego and Satan right in his ear, his followers are more anxious for Jesus to come back than I was. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. I stand before you not as somebody who's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm out there. I'm saying someone who's been like, ooh, God kind of woke me up. And I, and I know this church is rebuilding and refocusing and refollowing and growing stronger. And every time it seems... There's a new level of, of joy and passion here. And that is amazing and wonderful to see. And I encourage you to keep going. Keep inviting your neighbors. But reach out to your neighbors who aren't from here as well. Reach out to the diaspora, the, the, the Egyptians and the Sudanese and those who might have friends from those tribes that are unreached. You would be shocked. Our mission has a whole division now, I guess you'd call it, reaching the diaspora in Chicago, in Atlanta, I forget where else they are, all over, in France, in Paris, because they've gotten kicked out of their countries. I don't know what your part is in fulfilling and to bring about meeting this criteria of Christ's return. If you want to come to Africa with us, talk to us. If you want to go to New York City, go. There are people from Indonesian tribes living in Queens. Um, we met a few other missionaries that actually were in Egypt for many, many years, and for health reasons, they came back. Well, they immediately went and found a Sudanese population and started reaching out to them in very creative, interesting ways. I will tell you there is nowhere on the mission field that's comfortable anymore. All those jobs have been taken. 
and I think we might have just gotten the last one in Windhoek, Namibia, because we're going to be living in a city that has nice paved streets and running water that you can drink from the tap. Uh, and I think God is being merciful to my family uh, by sending us there, and maybe because he knows how hard mentally, emotionally, spiritually the job will be. I don't know. But on a whole, wherever you do mission work now, wherever you share Christ, it's going to be difficult, whether it's down the street or across the country or across the globe. Um, some people, well, many people come up to us and say, we'll just give you a lot of credit. I'm like, yeah, don't, don't. We do it because that's where God called us. It's not like we really have a choice. And we do love it. And thankfully, God's given us that love for what we do and where we live. I just want to close um, with the idea of, have you ever waited for someone? And you waited and you waited and you waited and they didn't show up. And you get frustrated at first. and You get kind of, well, you get impatient first and you move to frustration. And then you're like, oh, they screwed up my whole day because they didn't show up, right? We've all been there. And all our plans and our hopes were based on that person showing up and arriving. And sometimes we wait so long, we just kind of write them off. And we say, ah, forget George. He's always late. I just, I just don't want to make, take the time anymore. And as I thought about Christ's return, I thought about our eschatology. I thought about reaching these tribes, reaching these people groups that are scattered all over the globe. The thousand that live in Africa, the, the other how many thousand that live across the 1040 window, Asia, India, China. I said, what if his showing up was dependent on something that I was supposed to do? And my frustration in waiting for him was because I didn't do my part. And again, I felt convicted. I'm going to leave you just with this little simple quote from a commentary I was reading. It says, it is when we are least comfortable with the world that we are most dramatically, that we most dramatically proclaim the kingdom of our Lord. And I hear Pastor Hawko's annoyance with culture. And I, we've seen it this year, the things that you have to, to battle against. The, 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 cult, the moral <laughs> disintegration, I guess, in America. And those are important things. And I'd say keep on being uncomfortable with it. Keep on fighting for what we believe is biblical and wholesome and, and Christ-like and what God has designed us to be. But I think maybe the more we get uncomfortable with it, maybe we can be a little bit more fanatical about what we do believe. And um, I just want to encourage you with that. We've got work to do. It might start with your neighbor. It might start downtown. It might start in New York City. It might start by sending people like us. Um, if you want to get on our prayer partner list, that's great. Your other missionaries that Harmony supports, write them an email. Two lines thought about you this morning. How are things going? We're praying for you. Get involved in their lives. We got to spend last evening for a couple hours with the mission committee, and it was great. It's our favorite part of our trip is to actually sit down and talk with people and answer questions uh, because we want to be involved because you're involved with us, whether you know it or not. So, thank you.
Anybody want to get him fired now because he's such a bad Christian? <laughs> Welcome to the club, brother. I've always been a bad Christian. That's yeah. And what's yeah. your honey? What's your... She's hiding in the back. Come on. Come on up. Let's, uh, we want to pray over you guys. And your son can come. One's downstairs. He's having more Toby fun. loves the limelight. He, he loves does? it. Yeah, he's 14. He loves just... Ooh. Do you have a little dance or something you can sing for us? Can no. you moonwalk? I moonwalk. <laughs> we want to pray for these brethren, right? So uh, I'm going to ask you to exercise your priesthood by joining me as I lead us in prayer. Uh, come on over. I won't bite you. <laughs> well, I might, but... Uh, you'll get over it. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege that we have as your children of having seen the light. Mm. That illumination came into our minds when we trusted Christ, that you gave us life and that eternal and secure. And Lord, thank you that the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us, but uh, continually pursues and sometimes nags. And Lord, I thank you for uh, my brother's witness today. Uh, we're all in process. We're all growing. And God, we've been freshly reminded that there is an appropriate fanaticism. <laughs> if you will um, help us, God, by your grace to recognize the open doors that a, a uh, decaying culture gives us for speaking for you. So, Lord, open our mouths. Uh, I'm praying for the Zwarts specifically as a family, God, that you would undertake for every need that they have and that, Lord, in the days ahead, there would be abundant fruit-bearing because of what they do. Lord, uh, show yourself faithful, dependable, because you are. You always come through. And we're looking to you in the name of Jesus. We commend them to your grace, God. We want to... Uh, see your favor on them and on their ministry and on the new school adventure and uh, the new move and the new connections. We're asking for your spirit to go in front of them and bear fruit and uh, give them joy on the journey. Lord, we all need that. Give them joy on the journey. We ask and commit them to your grace. In the great name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen and amen. God bless you Thanks. guys. Thanks for being with us. They'll be in the back later, and you're going to sing. And